Get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast you can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Kobe Cole, and this episode is about one of hip-hop's greatest MCs, a true lyricist, a deep thinker, and continues to have success and be relevant 25 years later. The Illmatic Kid himself, Nas. Yeah, you know, we've been down for a while. I was trying, since from like 89, I was in the lab trying to come out. 16. That's when I think I was at my best, really. I think I feel like a vet now. This past April 2018 marks the 24th anniversary of his debut album, Illmatic. A classic album that ushered in a new era for hip-hop. In previous podcasts, I talk about the first-generation hip-hop kids like Jay-Z, Biggie, and the Roots Crew, who watched the birth of the genre, took notes, and delivered classic albums and had legendary careers. Nas preceded all of them, and his early rise in hip-hop inspired several generations of creatives. Not just in music, Nas' ascension came out of nowhere, and he forced rappers to pay more attention to lyrics. In this podcast, I'll share his story from breakout success to one of hip-hop's most epic battles when we all watch Nas and Jay-Z go at it. I think he um, was prolonging it to um, come back, try to come back with something, and uh, release something on his album. Plus, you'll hear interviews that I've done with Nas over the years, including my first interview, which was 14 months before the release of Illmatic. So... Let's get started. And thinking about Nas, I'm always thinking about lyrics. And right now I'm thinking about It Ain't Hard to Tell when he says Nas rhyme should be locked in a cell. And in my head right now, if I could put music on this podcast, you would be hearing the instrumental from The World Is Yours. Doom, 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 doom. Whose world is this? The world is yours. It's one of my favorite Nas songs. And it best explains this very unique artist. The world was his to conquer. So let me tell you about Nasir Jones. He was born in Brooklyn on September 14, 1973. His father, Charles Jones III, was a jazz musician from Natchez, Mississippi, where he grew up during the Jim Crow era. The South's deep racist history from slavery through the civil rights era of the 60s has been well documented. Nas's father grew up experiencing racism firsthand. He goes into the Navy and is discharged in New York City in the 60s, where he changed his name to Olu Dara, which means God is good in the Yoruba language. In later years, they would actually work together on Nas Street Disciple album. And I asked Nas about working with his dad. That was the greatest. That was the greatest thing because, um, you know, he's the one that put me in the music game. He's the one that told me to get into the music. And, um. You know, you know, he's he's a talented dude. He played harmonica. He played the trumpet and he sang on it. And all I did was rap on it. Nas's father meets Fanny Ann Little, who was a postal worker who also migrated to New York City from North Carolina. So the story goes, his dad stayed in New York a little too long, ran out of money and ended up settling down with Fanny and having two sons, Jabbar and Nas. The family then relocates to the Queensbridge housing projects in Long Island City, which is actually right across from Manhattan, a quick ride over the Queensboro Bridge. If you're coming over the Queensboro Bridge from Manhattan, you look to your left and you'll see this sprawling development of 96 six story Y shaped buildings. It was built in the late 30s. The Queensbridge Houses is one of the largest public housing complexes in North America. 
Originally, the residents were working-class white families, but in the 50s, the management wanted to change the racial balance and enacted a rule to move out families that made over 3000 a year to better middle-class housing in other parts of Queens, replacing them with black and Latino families. The building started to decline into one of the roughest housing projects in the city of New York. However, would be put on the hip-hop map by a few residents, and I'll get to that in a few minutes. A young Nas and his best friend who lived upstairs with him, named Will Graham, otherwise known as Ill Will, turned Nas onto this new genre building from the Bronx, but quickly spreading all over the city. You see, the story is with hip-hop, it started in the Bronx, but each borough in the New York City area would develop their own hip-hop movement and their own stars. I mean, think about it. The Bronx had the Sugar Hill Gang, who really was the first superstar um, singles that Rapper's Delight that came out. They had the Cold Crush Brothers. Harlem had Curtis Blow. But Queens was the home of hip-hop's first supergroup, which I did a podcast on, Run DMC. Then you had LL Cool J. During this time in Queensbridge, there were jam sessions in the park. And a young Queensbridge resident named Lolita Shante Goodman was the battle queen taking on all comers in rap battles. She made a lot of money for her. 12 to 14-year-old just battling other MCs for cash. Many took her for granted, thinking because she was a girl, she couldn't rap. In the recent Netflix bio about Roxanne Shantae's life, you can see her in action battling other rappers. In 1984, a young producer who lived in the Queensbridge Projects by the name of Marlon Williams, a.k.a. Marley Mall, was hanging out with Tyrone Fly Ty Williams, who would eventually start the Cold Chillin' Records label, were local party promoters, and they were upset that a group named UTFO didn't show up for a show. And at the time, they had a song called Roxanne, Roxanne. So as the story goes, Shantae overheard the conversation and offered to do a diss song to Roxanne called Roxanne's Revenge. The song made it to the radio and ended up becoming a huge hit, selling over 250,000 copies in New York City alone, creating a bunch of answer records from various female MCs across the country. Have some fun and Google Roxanne Wars, and you'll see an array of songs from Roxanne's doctor to Roxanne's friend to little Roxanne, Queensbridge was now on the map. So late in 1985, wanting to capitalize on all this Queensbridge love Molly was getting with Roxanne Shantae, another Queensbridge rapper named MC Shan wanted everybody to know that Queensbridge was the center of the hip hop universe. And they recorded the iconic song, The Bridge which proclaimed Queensbridge, a.k.a. The Bridge, the place where hip-hop got started. That, of course, annoyed MCs all over New York City, but a young MC in the Bronx named Chris Parker, a.k.a. KRS-One, whose crew Boogie Down Productions, based in the Bronx, responded with South Bronx proclaiming The Bronx. Rightly so, because the Bronx was the birthplace of hip-hop. It was at this time where Molly Maul was creating the Juice Crew with Fly Tie, and MC Shan responded with Kill That Noise, which was just an okay response, but BDP claps back and shuts everything down with the iconic The Bridge Is Over. So Nas is growing up, he's a, you know, preteen, and he's absorbing this hip-hop energy coming from his community. And in 1985, Nas's parents broke up. 
His dad was spending so much time touring in Europe that the relationship wasn't able to survive. This, again, was a pivotal time for a young Nas and his brother Jabbar, who took on the persona jungle. And their neighbor, Ill Will, Will Graham, his best friend, and they were really absorbing all this Queen's energy. Nas was very smart. His father kept a lot of books in the house. So Nas, similar to Tupac, was feeding his mind with intellectual fare, unlike what the average kid was reading. As they both, meaning Tupac and Nas, became MCs, you could hear this knowledge in their rhymes. Nas was a dreamer, and he didn't connect with school much. He had a passion for music and the arts. School was not a great environment, and their father thought it would ruin them, so he told his boys at 13 and 14 to drop out of school and get a job. In the Illmatic documentary, Nas' father talked about how he was raised in the South in the public schools he attended versus the schools his sons were attending in New York City. He felt like the schools in New York were jails and setting his boys up for prison. Now, Nas's mother was not a fan of this, and it really created a tense situation within the family. Compounding this was it was the crack era and inner city America was suffering unemployment, crime and drugs were rampant. Nas's mother was trying her best to provide a safe environment in their home. A lot of the kids enjoyed coming over to Nas's house because his mom would cook. It was outside the home that really scared her the most. And Nas was now out of school and needed to do something with his time. Coming up on the Backstory Podcast, you'll hear a young Nas 14 months before the release of Illmatic. I was trying to, I was going down to this label, forgot the name of it, and they told me to come with them down to see Search. So I went down there, and they, and Search and them had done Back to the Grill, and they asked me to be on that, and I needed that. Then a little bit later, two of New York and hip-hop's biggest MCs have an epic battle. It won't end, like everybody's battling now, but um, I hope it all stays on um, wax and stays peace, you know? But first... A word from our sponsor, helping to keep this podcast going. Support for Backstory with yours truly, Colby Cole, comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand fully so you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Colby. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSConsumerAccess.org number 3030. You're listening to the Backstory Podcast, and this is the story of Nas. Now, Nas was so excited by the initial stardom of Queens rapper Roxanne Shante, they would cross paths in the project. Roxanne would challenge Nasir to rap, and if he wasn't prepared, threaten to beat him up. In the Roxanne movie on Netflix that recently came out, they touch on this relationship. Nas, who was going by Nasty Nas at the time, was working hard with ill will trying to make music and get put on. It was time for him to do a demo, and he managed to connect with the large professor who at the time was an up-and-coming. So a young Nas in the late 80s was going into the studio where Large Professor was recording. In this studio during this time, Eric B. and Rakim were recording the Let the Rhythm Hit Him album. Also recording in that studio was Cool G Rap, another Queens MC who was a huge street rapper, sort of like the Jeezy of his time. Cool G Rap had a string of big records and someone a young Nas looked up to. Nas was a student of hip-hop, had a passion for the greats. I asked him about his love for hip-hop. That's what I'm here for. You know, when I see the game getting treated bad and I see... You know, our music getting treated bad. I'm always going to stand up and and speak my mind when a lot of people will be scared to. But I love the game too much to see it get treated bad. You know what I'm saying? 
That's what I'm here for. And in another interview we did together, he talks about taking time in each album to salute his rap heroes like KRS-One, Cool G Rap, and Rakim. I was doing a beat. I wanted to do a Rakim sounding kind of song. So I was putting it together with all the sounds from like I thought that Rakim songs used to have. So then I said, wait up. And I just started writing a joint about him. Because if you notice in a lot of bookstores, I go there and I look for books on everything. And there's a small section African-American section. It ain't really giving you a whole lot in, the, in these incorporated bookstores. And even if you go in the music section, you want to learn about it. They got cheesy hip-hop books. Yeah. Or well, they might have stuff just on the ones like Eminem and 50. Right. Or it, Like, you want to go and look deeper into what the real thing is. So, I, I did a song like a book, like for rock, because there was no Rakim book, there's no Dana Dane, no Slick Rick, no Coogee Rap book. So it was like a song joint, you know what I'm saying? So KRS is all, uh, uh, ahead of his time. He was way ahead of his time. And um, so I just wanted to do another one for him. So back to those early days in the studio where the large professor was working. It must have been surreal for Nas, who was this kid with rap dreams in the studio where Rakim and G-Rap were recording. So when the studios would be empty, he would go in and start recording demos. It was early 1991 when a verse Nas recorded got large professor's attention. In this verse, he says, verbal assassin, my architect pleases. When I was 12, I went to hell for snuffing Jesus. Nasty Nas is a rebel to America, police murderer. I'm causing hysteria. It was at this time that the large professor was in a group called Main Source who were working on their debut album. It's one of the great albums that no one much talks about. It's called Breaking Adams. I suggest you download it if you're not familiar with it. While recording the Breaking Adams album, the large professor heard this verse from Nas and it blew him away. And he decided decided to place him on a posse cut he was creating for the album. The song was called Live at the Barbecue, and it was the world's introduction to Nas. And as everybody was falling in love with Breaking Adams, they were also asking, who was this nasty Nas kid? MC Search, who was a part of the rap group Third Bass, was just coming off their Derelicts of Dialect album, which spawned the huge hit single, Pop Goes the Weasel. Search was the star of third base and decided to go solo. When he heard Nas's verse on Live at the Barbecue, he wanted to work with him, especially on a solo project. It was during this time that an event would happen that would forever change Nas. On May 23, 1992, Nas and Ill Will and friends went to the movies. Nas in his documentary talked about how Ill Will never smoked weed, but for some reason was on the edge that day, so we offered him some weed to chill him out and actually Will smoked for the first time. When they got back to Queensbridge, Will was going around to collect money from different people around the way for a barbecue they were having. It was Memorial Day weekend, and when they would do barbecues, everybody would chip in, even the hustlers. Everybody would give a little money so that they can get food and drinks and all that stuff. At some point, there was an altercation between Will and a woman who snatched his chain and broke it apart. He responded by hitting her. She then went got the father of her child and her brother, who were armed, and they came through the Queensbridge Project looking for Will. Jungle, Nas's brother, was the first one of the crew they confronted, and it was tense. Jungle lied about Will's whereabouts and would catch up with Will to warn him that these dudes were coming after him. But when he confronted Will to tell him about these guys coming after him, Will told Jungle that he wasn't running anywhere, and the men confronted them in that moment and shot him to death right in the middle of the Queensbridge project. They also shot Jungle, who survived. Will died instantly. Nas comes out the building to see his brother shot and his best friend dead. It was one of the most difficult times of his life. Will was his best friend. 
Will was also the person who turned him on to hip hop. How could he go on? Jungle in the uh, Stillmatic documentary mentioned them having PTSD, having to still live where their best friend was murdered. Pivotal, tragic moments in your life are times of depression, sadness, anger, frustration, fear and doubt. These life-altering moments also open doors of opportunity. Nas thought he was getting a deal after Live at the Barbecue, and this was a year prior that that song had come out, and they were turned down by so many labels. He was a bit frustrated at how long it was taken. And then think about it. He loses his best friend. It seemed all dark, but sometimes they say when it gets real dark, the light comes, and things started to work in his favor. Unfortunately, he lost his best friend, but fortunately, doors started to open for him. As you listen to any Nas records, you'll hear him say Ill Will. He also named his label after Will, and his brother Jungle was an artist on a label. You'll hear them discuss his experience running a label and his honest disgust of his own label later in the podcast. So, how did Nas get his deal? Remember, I was telling you guys about Search. He was recording his solo album, and he wanted Nas on a posse cut called Back to the Grill Again, where once again, Nas would deliver some classic lines. Search, sensing that this kid was special, would become Nas's manager and call his friend Faith Nevich, who was an A&R at Columbia Records, and tell her Nas was a no-brainer to sign. His first solo single was from the soundtrack for a movie about a teen interracial couple in Detroit and the drama resulting from it. It was called Zebrahead. It starred a young Michael Rappaport and Nobuche Wright. The record company was a new imprint called Rough House Records. I was familiar with them because I was working in Philadelphia at the time, and it was based out of Philly. Two music guys, Chris Schwartz and Joe Nicolo, managed this label. They would go on to sign Criss Cross, whose first album like sold like five million copies, Cypress Hill, huge artist, and the Fugees. This soundtrack featured Search, and he was able to get Nas on board thanks to his relationship with the Columbia A&R Faith Nevich. The first single was called Halftime. And now hip-hop heads were getting a solo track from Nas. The response was immediate. Who is this guy? His lyrics were unlike anyone else coming out. He had depth. Nas was now one of the most anticipated MCs. It was at this moment Columbia formally signed him. He received a $17,000 advance, which is nothing to compare to what artists are getting today. And he comes back to Queensbridge Project and told all his friends and family they could have anything they wanted. In this interview from 1992, I speak with Nas about his success up until that point. Now, keep in mind, this is 14 months before Illmatic. For those who don't know, I remember this brother a couple years ago. He was down with Main Source, right? Yeah, he lost right. He was on this cut called Live at the Barbecue. Yeah. Yeah, the, right. the, the fat. That was, and you had the fattest part of the whole track. So what's up, man? What's going on? I'm chilling, you know what I'm saying? I'm out here. All right, well, tell me what's been going on since since you were working with me. you still working with the large presser, right? Yeah, you know, we've been down for a while. I was trying, since from like 89, I was in the lab trying to come out. 16. That's when I think I was at my best, really. I think I feel like a vet now. What, oh, really? Yeah. What that? So, so what, have, um, what have you been doing, though, since then? Since, like, Live at the Barbecue? Live at the Barbecue, that guy that said the Apollo one Easter with um, Eric B. and Rakim and Gangstar and um, we, we got we caught wreck up there, you know? After that, I've been trying to shop, shop my own. I had some demos me and him did in his apartment a while back. I was trying to shop them. Everybody's fronting on me, you know what I'm saying? Uh huh. Word. So, how did you end up getting your deal at Rough House? Well, that, I went down to the lab because I met Search, you know what I'm saying? I met a, I met mad rappers, but I, I'm Search was one of them I met. I was trying to, I was going down to this label 
forgot the name of it. And they told me to come with them down to see Search. So I went down there and they and Search and them had done back to the grill and they asked me to be on that. And I needed that anyway. Yeah, you kind of kicked so, it on that one too. Good looking. So I did that. And then um, then Search, you know what I'm saying? He hooked me up with Rough House. Oh, okay. Well, you got a fat new single out. It's called Halftime. It was actually on the soundtrack for the Zebrahead movie. Yeah. How'd you like making that one? That's, that was cool because, you know what I'm saying? I was... <clears throat> Damn, I needed to come out, you know what I'm saying? So right. that came in right in the time when I felt I could tell tell brothers where I'm coming from, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Halftime, that means like, yo, hold up, you know what I'm saying? It's like intermission, man, from all the garbage rap or whatever, you know what I'm saying? It's okay. all for the real rap. All right, what, what else are you working on? Right now on my album, which is not done, and I need that done so I can get it out. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's, the name of that is Illmatic. You know, that's like the science beyond being ill, you know what I'm saying, on the mic. As you can hear, he was new to the industry, proclaiming himself a vet. Here he is, continuing to discuss the making of his groundbreaking debut album, Illmatic. So what kind of flavor can we expect on this brand new album coming out? Uh, if you into some um, raps dealing with what's going on, you know what I'm saying, in the street, in the jungle, like where I'm from in the in Queensbridge Project. You know oh, you from the Queensbridge Projects, home right. of uh, uh, Molly Mall? Right. Okay, so you remember when you was coming up, you remember them? Yeah, I remember them. They used to do the jams in the park and everything, you know, the hectic jams, niggas, you know, everybody, people getting murdered, I was bugging. Oh, really? They was out there, though, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. They, they for real. Okay, well, you came from a straight-up hip-hop background, then. Yeah, so the stuff, I'm is like... You can relate to it's real street, not stupid street, like on being stupid, but for real, it's real. That's mm-hmm. what I call it. Okay. Now, do you do production for people too? Nah. You're not doing anything. Nah. Are you working with any other any other people on their album? Are you doing any other guest shots on anyone else's album? If anything, I'll probably do something with my man Akinella. He's been like come out. Right. I heard about him. Yeah, he's fat. Oh, you know what I'm saying? I work with G-Rap. That's my man. Mm-hmm. All the brothers, you know, from, from the crew, the foundation. The hardcore brothers. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, my crew. Coming up on the Backstory Podcast, Nas drops his debut album, Illmatic, and helps bring New York back during hip-hop's renaissance in the 90s. You know, I remember coming in the game when Big was coming in the game, and we talked about making it happen, and, and Raekwon and Wu-Tang, and we, we, we talked about making it happen, and we was just underground artists at the time with live at the barbecue back to the grill again and halftime Nas had a legion of fans who couldn't wait to hear his debut album and then right before Christmas in 1993 I remember getting a white label from Columbia Records back then all the major labels had rap music departments in addition to R&B and the mix show guys in the rap departments created a buzz by sending out white labels. the DJs loved the exclusivity of it I remember hearing it ain't hard to tell like it was yesterday This large professor produced track featuring a song up until that time that had not been sampled, Michael Jackson's classic Human Nature. NT from Cool and the Gang, Long Red from Mountain, and Slow Red from Stanley Clark, all mashed together for this infectious beat, plus the lyrics. It was another notch up from halftime, radio playable, and really just a dope song. I started this podcast with a line from this song about his rhymes need to be locked in a cell. It ain't hard to tell. But then there was this other line in the song where he says, the mic check is life or death, breathing a sniper's breath. I exhale the yellow smoke of Buddha through righteous steps, deep like the shining, sparkle like a diamond, sneak a Uzi on the island in my army jacket lining. 
I mentioned this earlier, but growing up in Queensbridge, just like any hood around the country, there's a lot of crime and a lot of brothers went to jail. A lot of his friends were in Rikers Island. So that line, sneak a Uzi on the island in my army jacket line and got everybody's attention. He kept dropping those shock lines. In January 1994, It Ain't Hard to Tell was getting a lot of airplay, not just in mix shows, but regular radio airplay. And the legend of Nas was growing. Then on April 19th, 1994, Illmatic was released. The album cover picture was of a young Nas superimposed over a picture of one of the buildings in the Queensbridge project. The picture was lifted from an old photo of Nas and his younger brother on a day when their father returned from Europe to visit them. Illmatic was New York. It was that gritty East Coast album considered one of the most brilliant hip hop albums of all time with tracks like The World Is Yours produced by the great Pete Rock, where he says, wipe the sweat off my dome, spit the phlegm in the street, sway Tim's on my feet, make my cypher complete whether cruising in a Sikhs cab or Montero Jeep I can't call it the beats make me fall asleep then he had a track called New York State of Mind the track was New York at that moment life's a bitch with AZ where he drops a line time is illmatic keep static like wool fabric pack a formatic that crack your whole cabbage. Then there was One Love, produced by Q-Tip from A Tribe Called Quest. It was like a letter of love and support to a friend in jail. Nas was always authentic, and Illmatic was the blueprint for a lot of brothers in inner-city America in the 90s, and you could say relatable to today. America loves to put black men in jail and throw away the key. It decimates the family structure. Many young men grow up without fathers, and a lot of these kids of men that are in jail end up in jail as well. And one love was Nas saying that he didn't forget about him. This part of the verse that always stuck with me when he says, congratulations, I know you got a son. I heard he looks like you. Why don't your lady write you? Told her she should visit. That's when she got hyper. Flip it. Talk about he acts too rough. He didn't listen. He be riffing while I'm telling him stuff. I was like, yeah, your girl don't care. She's a snake too. Messing with them niggas from that fake crew that hates you. Yeah, I mean, brothers can relate to this. Illmatic was an instant success putting Nas on the top tier of the hip-hop elite. New York City rap was back. I mean, Wu-Tang came out a year earlier in 93, and they were from Staten Island. And now you had Nas from Queens, Big from Brooklyn. Um, But hip-hop is a tough sport. You're only as good as your last album. And when you drop a classic album like Illmatic, your fan base expects something greater next. Nas would take two years off between albums. In 1995, he appeared on the track Verbal Intercourse on Raekwon the Chef's classic album, Only Built for Cuban Link. Now, again, Nas was considered more of a street artist. And his debut went gold, eventually going platinum years later. It was iconic to a generation of hip-hop heads and creatives. He didn't sell records like Snoop, Pac, and Big. So, in an effort to get some more mainstream success, he signed with industry veteran Steve Stout, who aligned him with the Trackmasters production team of Tone and Polk, who had a string of commercial hits at the time. At one point in the early 90s, Tone of Tone and Polk was going by the name of Red Hot Lover Tone. He was an artist on select records, and when his career as an artist kind of faded, he fell into the production style with his man Polk. And they produced a slew of songs in the 90s. For instance, they did Mary J. Blige, Be Happy, Well, Polk did that, but together they did Nothing But Love. Love from Heavy D, Candy Rain, Soul For Real, Hey Lover, LL Cool J, Get You Home, uh, Foxy Brown. Um, They had a whole bunch of songs. Even R. Kelly, who was a producer in his own right, decided to use uh, Trackmasters on his R-Double album. In addition to that, the Trackmasters were the driving force behind one of hip-hop's first super collabs that also turned into one of hip-hop's biggest disasters. I'm talking about the two albums that Jay-Z and R. Kelly put together, and they were both derailed by controversies around R. Kelly, the controversies that we're still talking about today. 
Nas wanted a bigger presence, and these guys, Trackmasters, knew how to make records that radio loves. When your records are on the radio, then your sales spike. When your sales spike, you get more shows. When you get more shows, you get more money. Doing a song with producers like the Trackmasters were financially lucrative for an artist. And it was during this time, a year after the release of his album, that Nas was going through some financial problems. In fact, he had to borrow money to get clothes for the 1995 Source Awards. Now, this was the awards where the infamous East Coast, West Coast dilemma really started to begin. Um, you can look it up on YouTube. Suge Knight goes on stage and throws shade at Puff. And remember, this was kind of big celebration awards. He was getting and reaping all of the rewards for Ready to Die in New York City. And the crowd was just showing so much love for him. And then Suge and Snoop, in a sense, created a little negativity. It was also the beginning of Dr. Dre separating himself from uh, Death Row, which would happen several months later. But Nas was paying attention to this. Nas, again, he went a little bit past gold, and he was seeing what Biggie was doing. He was seeing what Pac and Big was doing, and he wanted some of that success and what comes along with that success. So so it was time for Godson to get his due. Now, 1996 comes around, and 1996 was such um, an interesting year for hip-hop. Because really, the winds of hip-hop were changing drastically. So you had all these amazing albums coming out. I mean, think about it. The Fugees, The Score came out. Tupac dropped two albums. Redman, Dayla, The Roots, Outkast. And a new MC from Brooklyn who was down with Biggie named Jay-Z, who in his first single, Dead President, sampled Nas, which would become a factor in one of rap's biggest beefs in history. And I'll get to that in a few minutes. So Nas goes in the studio and records his sophomore album. And his first single was a Trackmaster collabo, a remake of a Curtis Blow song from the 80s with a very hot Lauryn Hill who was coming off the success of the Fuji score album. She didn't even release her solo album yet. The song was timeless. It was called If I Rule the World. Nas was back on the radio with a monster song. Jay-Z, at the same time, delivered a monster that spring as well. On the B-side of Dead Presidents, remember I told you Dead Presidents sample Nas's voice, and I'm going to give you some more backstory on that as we get into this beef that Jay-Z and Nas had. But on that B-side was Ain't No Nigga from Jay-Z and Foxy Brown, which was a huge song that spring as well. So you got Ain't No Nigga, and then you got If I Rule the World from uh, Nas. So hip-hop on the East Coast was back in full effect, and Biggie was still alive, and Pac was still alive. This was the first half of 1996. Hip-hop is such an unforgiving sport, and these two, Nas and Jay-Z, would be tied together for so many reasons. For instance, Jay's debut album, Reasonable Doubt, was released on June 25th, 1996. Then a week later, Nas drops It Was Written, which would go on to be Nas's best-selling album of his career. It Was Written gave Nas that jolt he was looking for. It was sort of like mob influence and a vibe similar to what Raekwon did with Only Built for Cuban Links and what Jay-Z was doing with Reasonable Doubt. Rappers loved associating with mobsters and even some characters that played in um, the Goodfellas mob movie were in the street dream video, which was one of the tracks, one of the singles from uh, It Was Written. So keep in mind, It Was Written was released in the midst of the East Coast, West Coast rap beef. The first track on the album was called The Message, and Nas raps, fake thug, no love, you get the slug, which Tupac took as a diss, and he actually responded to Nas with a couple of diss records. Um, you know, keep in mind, Nas was shot in New York, he went to jail in New York, and it was in that moment that he felt that there was some sort of conspiracy of East Coast rappers conspired against him, mainly Biggie and Puff, but he just had a thing for East Coast, and he was fueling the East Coast-West Coast beef. 
a lot of people don't know this, that Pac and Nas actually had a conversation and pieced things up because they were actually cool. And sadly, Pac was murdered that fall in 1996 and the music wasn't taken off of the Don Kilimani album. There are some songs of Pac dissing Nas, but they definitely pieced it up before he died. Another song in this album will be the beginnings of a concept project as Nas and Dr. Dre came together to do Nas is Coming, which led to the creation of The Firm, which was basically an East Coast group of Nas, Foxy Brown, AZ, who was on Nas's debut album, and Cormega, who was then replaced by Nature. Nas and Dre working together in the midst of the East Coast, West Coast didn't sit well on both sides of the country. Everybody was kind of drawing their line in the sand. And Dr. Dre, he left death row. He just wasn't having it anymore. And he basically rolled out with everything. He left everything with death row and decided to start Aftermath, which is still his company today. And he started to work with East Coast artists, including Jay-Z, who would go on to ghostwrite Dr. Dre's first single, Still D.R.E., on his second solo album, which was called 2001, which came out in 1999. Stay with me. We all like to call that The Chronic 2. And just to give you an idea of collaborations, you know, when Ice Cube was in N.W.A. and he left N.W.A., he came to the East Coast to work with the Bomb Squad. The Bomb Squad was the guys behind Public Enemy, and they were like the producers of that moment. And he went to the East Coast to do America's Most Wanted. So, you know, at this time, years later, there was these, these, these lines drawn in the sand. And keep in mind, Dr. Dre was so aligned with Death Row that a lot of people on the West Coast and the East Coast, it took a lot of balls for both of them to actually, Nas and Dr. Dre, to work together in the midst of that kind of energy. It was written with a double platinum album, um, but many of Nas's critics panned the album saying that he was on a pop mission, he was changing up his style, he was trying to do, uh, he was he was basically not the Nas of Illmatic. And this is like an ongoing battle for all urban artists, I mean, even today. They look to expand their audience but stay true to their core. Illmatic was such a defining album for any hip-hop head. And this new Nas was kind of hard to swallow for, for hardcore, you know, fans that loved Illmatic. But if you keep in mind today... He paved the way for the artist today because you look at a Kendrick Lamar, you look at um, J. Cole, um, you look at some of these major artists that come out. They they continuously stay true to their core. They don't have to make pop records. They don't have to make radio records. They just make music. And if radio likes it, that's great. If radio doesn't like it, oh, well. Like, they just make the music that they always wanted to make. But that would have never happened if it wasn't for all of the artists, not just Nas, but all of the other artists that kind of struggled, you know, trying to figure out how do I you know, stay true to my core of being this urban hip hop artist, but also expand my horizons. So the fall of 1996 on September 13th, Tupac is is dead. He died a few days after being shot. Six months later in March of 1997, the notorious B.I.G. is dead. This sent so many shockwaves through hip hop. I mean, as somebody that was working in the industry at that moment, it almost felt like it was over, like this was it. They weren't going to let this go on because the two biggest stars died. And I said this in the last podcast because a lot of people know that Biggie and Tupac died. I mean, just imagine if Drake and Kendrick Lamar died within six months of each other. That was the kind of impact of Tupac and Biggie. It really rattled everybody. I mean, and if you go back and listen to my Notorious B.I.G. podcast, I really talk all about that and share some interviews with the Notorious B.I.G. And I share um, an interview I did with Tupac. So it's 1997. We're dealing with the death of Tupac and 
and Biggie, six months apart. Nas starts to work on the Firm album. He's spending time with Dr. Dre. In fact, he does a track on Dr. Dre's Aftermath album called East Coast, West Coast Killers, where East Coast rappers and West Coast rappers get together on the song, which, again, a lot of people, it was weird. It was just like a weird time. Like, we were trying to move forward and trying to deal with our pain. Um, and then Nas and Dre put together the Firm album, which wasn't really, it just really didn't resonate. Um, and there were a lot of internal struggles. And I'm sure this was tough on Nas, too, because Nas had a really close relationship with Big early on in their careers when they were all starting together. And he wrote a song about Big and Pac on his Godson album, and I asked him about them and what was happening in hip-hop at that time. You know, I remember coming in the game when Big was coming in the game, and we talked about making it happen, and, and Raekwon and Wu-Tang, and we, we, we talked about making it happen. And we were just underground artists at the time. And when it started to happen, our whole world's changed and we couldn't spend as much time as we, we would like to. And then I saw certain dudes start hanging around Biggie after he blew up, trying to pull from his energy. But they never were there back in a one-room shack on Fulton Street where we used to hang and smoke and chill out. And I see a lot of phoniness occur over the years. A lot of artists never met Pac never drunk a bottle of Henny with him, never said, I love you, brother, to him, never looked in his eyes. You know, my relationship with a lot of these artists was based on a mutual respect thing and not just trying to juice their energy. You feel me? So when I see a lot of other artists that never knew Pac, who never knew Big before he had money, it's funny to me. You keep hearing this honesty from Nas. He doesn't hold back. I love that about him. He never worried about being politically correct. And even if that meant that he was unpopular or he had a lot of negative energy about what he had to say, it wouldn't stop him from saying what's on his mind. And as you continue listening to this podcast, you will hear that from him in all the interviews that we did. So in 1998, Nas made his film debut in video director Hype Williams' debut movie, Belly. Now, Hype Williams was doing all the big videos in the 90s. He was the hip-hop video director to go to. Nas was in this movie, and he started to explore Hollywood opportunities, and I spoke to him about this. Yeah, you know, I don't really, I don't like the whole, I don't like how black people are treated in Hollywood. It sucks, you know. But um, I, I am writing I am writing some stuff and producing stuff for my own I look up to the Denzel and uh, the Wayne's family and all of them, you know, the ones doing it on their own. So I'm trying to do it on my own, see what works. Hip-hop is changing so fast. So we're in 1997, a few weeks after the death of the Notorious B.I.G., his second album, Life After Death, is released. And it's a double album, and it goes on to, send, it goes on to sell 10 million copies. But you could tell there was a bit of a vacuum on the East Coast. And Jay-Z was the guy to fill that void coming off of the debut of Reasonable Doubt in 1996. And in 1998, Jay-Z releases his third album called Volume 2, Hard Knock Life, which would be his biggest album and would go on to sell 6 million copies and really put Jay-Z on the map across the country as the new go-to rapper, not just on the East Coast, but just in general. Nas would come back and drop two albums in 1999. His third album, I Am, which was initially supposed to be a double album, due to bootlegging, he ended up just pushing out one album. And the first track off of that album was the DJ premiere single, Nas Is Like, which was actually Nas kind of going back to his roots. Then controversy surrounds the project when Nas does a song with Puff Daddy, who at the time was coming off of his debut album, No Way Out, which had sold 7 million copies. So him and Nas get together to do a song called Hate Me Now. They do this big video. And it was really Hate Me Now was Nas answering all his critics. And in the video, him and Puff are on a cross. 
there, you know, there are a lot of religious connotations to this scene. And Puff saw it. He was like, nah, I don't want that to be out. So he tells Steve Stout, cut that part out. And somehow the wrong edit gets to MTV. It goes on TRL Live at the time. And Puff goes crazy. And so there are all kinds of stories about this. But basically, Puff confronts Steve Stout, physically confronts him, hits him over the head with a champagne bottle. It was really, really ugly. And then Steve Stout sues Puff, and I don't believe Puff got any type of charges for this or whatever, but it was just an ugly time for hip-hop, and unfortunately Nas' project was in the midst of this. So the response was just okay. So later that fall in 1999, because this first album came out in the spring, in the fall Nas rushes to release a second album, because remember, he had all these tracks already lined up. So he goes to release a second album, Nostradamus, which was another kind of subpar album. But it did give him a hit off of the album, You Owe Me, which was really like an R&B radio-friendly song. Again, a lot of core Nas fans, they just gave him a hard time about that because they just expected Illmatic, Illmatic, Illmatic. I'm telling you, a great classic album is the gift and the curse for an artist. So what else was happening throughout this time period was Jay-Z and Nas and the people around them were throwing subliminal shots at each other. Originally, Nas was supposed to be on Reasonable Doubt, but he never showed up to record. So that's when Ski, the producer of Reasonable Doubt, sampled his voice from Dead Presidents. But the beef was kind of smoldering between them. So then there was this Lex with the TV sets line in the message song, which some say was directed at Jay-Z. In fact, the competition between them was so interesting. Nas was supposedly getting rid of his Lexus because Jay-Z talked about having a Lexus. So that's the message from Nas. So then Jay-Z on his second album, Where I'm From, he says, I'm from where niggas pull your car and argue all day about who's the best MCs, Biggie, Jay-Z, or Nas. And then... Jay-Z's protege, Memphis Bleak, throws subliminals at Nas. Nas clapped backs, stating you want beef to the subliminals in Memphis Bleak's song in the Nostradamus single. Memphis Bleak claps back again, and Nas responds again. So, like, all this little stuff is kind of going on, and I don't think a lot of people knew what was happening. Again, we didn't have social media, so... If it was social media, it had been fueled a lot more. Then in June of 2001, Jay-Z is headlining Hot 97 Summer Jam concert. And on the stage, he does Takeover for the first time. Now, Blueprint wasn't out yet, but he does Takeover. And he really was throwing shots at Mob Deep. And he kind of dissed um, Prodigy from Mob Deep. And then at the end, he kind of called out Nas. Ask Nas. He don't want it with Hove. So then, in the summer of 2001, Nas responds with a freestyle coming at Jay-Z. Then, on September 11th, one of the darkest days in the history of America, it also happens to be the day that Jay-Z released the Blueprint album, which was a classic album. It was really an introduction to Kanye West, who did most of the production on the Blueprint album. And the song Takeover that he had performed on Summer Jam a few months earlier was now on the Blueprint album, but a third verse was added to the song, and that was about Nas. It was a complete breakdown of Nas's career and blistering diss of his albums, kind of like saying all of those albums in, in the last 10 years were pretty whack, so it's like you make one good album every you know 10 years was kind of what Jay-Z was saying. He also dropped business elements of the music business and said Search was the owner of his publishing. That's who Jay-Z had to pay when he used the line from Dead President. He didn't pay Nas, he paid Search. And then at the end, he throws a subliminal that left most wondering, what is Jay-Z talking about? He says, because you know who did you know what with you know who. 
yeah, let's just keep that between me and you for now. This would obviously be more bait for a response from Nas because now it was personal. But keep in mind, September 11th happened. And although this album came out, America was dealing with something else. It was a terrorist action happening in America, in New York City, that brought down the World Trade Center. So even though this great album was out there, people were kind of in a fog, and especially in New York City. New York City was in mourning, and it was no social media. So I would say if this never happened, this whole takeover thing, it would have been a lot different. But because of what was happening in the country at the time, that took over what people were talking about. Because in New York City, everybody kind of had to connect to somebody or knew somebody that was affected, whether it be somebody that died or, or a first responder that was injured or the lingering effects. It was just a very strange time in the city. So three months after the album comes out, on December 4th, Jay-Z's birthday, 2001, Nas released Ether, where he goes point by point on all that was said on the takeover. And it was blistering as well but also brilliant. It immediately resonated with hip-hop heads and lyrically superior to TakeOver. The Illmatic Nas was back. Ether became a hip-hop term whenever a rapper would annihilate another rapper. And actually recently, uh, Remy Ma ethered Nicki Minaj on a track, Sheether. One week after that, Jay-Z comes back with Super Ugly, which you could tell was hastily put together, but the digs were personal. Everyone was tuned into this beef, and Jay-Z went there. Remember his line at the end of TakeOver, you know who, did you, did you know what? Well, it turns out that Jay-Z had a relationship with Carmen Bryant, who is the baby mother of Nas. And Nas and Carmen weren't together anymore, but evidently she, was, she had a relationship with Jay-Z as well. And Jay-Z let the whole world know and Super Ugly. Me and the boy AI got more in common than just bawling and rhyming. Get it? More in Carmen. I came in your Bentley back seat, skeeted in your Jeep, left condoms on your baby seat. This was really just hastily put together, and it was kind of like personal digs that Jay-Z was doing against Nas. But it wasn't Ether. I mean, Ether was just, you just have to look at the lyrics and listen to it and see what he was saying in Ether. And then when you hear this, it's sort of like, you know, it just wasn't. And Jay will tell you, like, that wasn't my best work. But the reaction against Jay was immediate. People were angry with him. Um, even his mother said that he just took it too far. Nas's mother was listening. She said, you took it too far. And Jay-Z's mother supposedly told him that he needed to apologize. And to his credit, he did. He did apologize. He went and said he was sorry and took it too far. And that kind of cooled out the beef. Um, and all this literally happened in two weeks, right? So... Three months after TakeOver, there was like this two-week period of intensity between Nas and Jay-Z. Another thing that I appreciate about Nas and Jay-Z, just seeing where they are now, these guys evolved, and they're more mature and would eventually work together in the future. But we had just lost Tupac and Biggie because of something like this. And so people were really fearful, like, oh, my God, the two biggest rappers are going at it, and, you know, we could have more violence. And... um to his credit, Jay-Z kind of squashed it. It wasn't dead, but it was kind of like it, he apologized for it. Like a couple days later, Nas releases Stillmatic. And he was going back to his roots with the large professor, DJ Premier, and adding up-and-coming hot producer Swiss Beats. 
and Salam Remy, who is a great producer as well. Salam Remy um, is one of these guys, man. He just needs to get more props. And he's a friend of mine, so he's going to be blushing when I say this. But he's such a great producer. Salam Remy is responsible for Amy Winehouse. You know, Salam Remy was responsible for the Fugees. The Fugees' first album was kind of a dud until Salam Remy re. re- remixed vocab and nappy heads and it changed their career which led to the score so salam remy working with Nas was really cool in that moment like he's just a really good producer in fact uh, a couple years ago he did jasmine sullivan's late last album i can't remember the name of it but it's a classic album that a lot of people just don't know about but salam remy did most of that album so back to Nas and stillmatic the album was a success and that went double platinum again Nas's. uh Stock rose after Ether came out. So people were really interested in Nas. So now let's fast forward six months later. It's 2002 Summer Jam for Hot 97. So Nas is now headlining the show because Nas is having this great year. He had a bunch of singles off of Stomatic, including One Mic, which was blowing up all over the place. And I have a little connection to this story because um, most of my radio career, I spent in Philadelphia, but in the spring of 2002, a new radio station launched in New York City called Power 105.1, and I was a part of the team that launched the station. I did afternoons, and I was the music director. So we were just sort of this up-and-coming station going against the big station, Hot 97, which never had any competition. In fact, one of the architects of the original architects of Hot 97 is a guy named Steve Smith. He left and went to work for the company that owned Power 105, and then he was a part of the launch of the station. So it was interesting with him being on the other side, going against the station that he helped build, which actually kind of fueled me and my radio career because I left that station and went back to Philadelphia to program against the station that I helped build and spent most of my career on. So I totally understood that. So anyway, uh, this radio battle was happening in New York and Nas had planned on having a prop on stage where Jay-Z, there was like a body prop of Jay-Z that he was going to hang in his set. And when they were going through the check on the the sound check and getting everything ready for the show, management at the station said, you can't do that. And Nas was furious. What do you mean I can't do this? Because every year, Jay-Z would do something whenever he'd be on the show. He would do something on that stage. I mean, one year, Jay-Z brought Michael Jackson out. I mean, that's how big that event was for hip-hop. But Hot 97 was like, you can't do that, Nas. Nas was furious. So what does Nas do? I remember I was I was on the air, and we get the call. Nas is not doing Summer Jam. He's coming to Power 105 right now. He wants to get on the radio. So he comes right to the station, and we're like, sure, go on the radio. I mean, we were just an up-and-coming radio station at that time. And that was really the night that we arrived. Nas shows up. He talks about what he wanted to do and what happened, and then he starts calling out all the personalities high-profile personalities at Hot 97, and then he goes in on some of the artists. It was a really interesting, honest moment from Nas. You can go to YouTube and find it, and you'll be like, wow, like this really happened. Yeah, it happened. I I, I thought that he could never go back to Hot 97 again. I thought that there, that was over because they were kind of shell-shocked at the energy that they got from Nas. He was just upset, and as he should. He just kind of felt like everybody allowed Jay-Z to kind of come at him so now he wants to come back, and now you restricted me from doing anything. And he kind of felt like that the the station had a little favoritism for Jay Z as well, like it was like it was being blocked. So at Power One Hundred Five, we didn't care. We was like, come on over, you can come over, you can say whatever you want, and that really um, put us on the map. That night put us on the map. So the following fall of two thousand two, he drops his next album, Godson, and Nas was hotter than ever. I mean, that moment on Power One Hundred Five. 
it was it was it launched him. I mean, just people just liked love an honest person. They don't love fake. They love people that are honest and they that talk, tell the truth, even if it means consequences. And there were some consequences for Nas for doing that politically. You just you know, Hot ninety seven was a kind of you wanted to be in favor with them, and when you weren't in favor with them, they could mess with your career, especially when it was only them in the market. But now you had another station, so it was kind of it was kind of interesting. So Godson comes out, and I told you I left that station to go back to Philly to program against the station that I I um, started on, and so I was programming this little bitty station, and I did this event, and I invited Nas to come out, and this was the first time since the Power One Hundred Five incident. So this is like literally, you know, like five or six months after. The that. And um, I asked him about that infamous night for the Summer Jam night, and here's what he had to say. That's what I'm here for. You know, when I see the game getting treated bad and I see our music getting treated bad, I'm always going to stand up and, and speak my mind when a lot of people will be scared to. But I love the game too much to see it get treated bad. You know what I'm saying? That's what I'm here for. Godson continue the energy of Stillmatic. This, again, was going back to his roots. Straight hip-hop. No commercial R&B-infused song. His first single was a straight gem called Made You Look. And we talked about this album and this new energy Nas was delivering. This one is um, the most personal album I ever did. Um, talking about a lot that I've seen and been through. A lot of uh, rappers have stuff that come out and they talk about, you know, bragging or whatever. That's cool. I love that. But this record, I didn't have to really make up no stories or I'm done. I just went into my life. Most personal record I ever did. You know, when um you know, no no commercial, no um no R and B fill, just straight um the way I remember rap music being in the early eighties, the way the way it sounded to me, I tried to do do that. And Nas was just not an artist. Nas was a label owner as well. So right before Godson came out or the year before it came out, um he got his own imprint named after his best friend, Will Graham, called Ill Will Records. And they dropped an album called Queensbridge Finest and the single Uchi Wally, which was a huge club um, and street single. But the label life wasn't what Nas expected, and I asked him about his label. And once again, an honest, direct answer. With, with my record company that I'm on, Sony Music, I've been like the only rap dude to have a career there. And uh, it's been hard to really to really get my thing jumping over there. You can look at the history with So So Def. They, that fell. Def Jam was originally on Columbia and Sony. That fell. They had to go and start all over. And then Steve Rifkin with Loud Records. Rap music ain't made to stay over there at Sony. And I've been at, at that plantation for a long time. Wow. And making the best out of it. I just never really said anything. And um, so now, finally... We found some artists, and I, I put out Bravehearts at QB's Finest, you know, but now we're going to officially start doing our thing on, yeah. on a different label, yeah, with, with that record company. But I'm still on Sony, but with that record company, we're going to do that somewhere else. He followed that up in 2004 with a double album called Streets Disciple, which the title was a line out of his Live at the Barbecue verse on the main source album, which was really the first time we ever heard Nas. Here's me and Nas talking about Streets Disciple. Well, I wanted to do a double record for a long time, so I got in the studio and I I did I tried to do one back in '97, but it leaked out. So half of it leaked out, so I couldn't do it. And uh, so I finally got a chance to do one. And of course, with like this amount of material, you're gonna be you're gonna have to talk about 
you get you get to talk about everything and, and uh as a man you want to talk about things brothers go through and all of that you know not just the rap side of your life not just this, the the glossy shiny side of your life but the real side of your life too and it's, it's important to get personal sometimes you know so let's let's talk about the making of this album because you know you're just a different you've always been and i've known you from before you even got started you just always been a different dude you've never been like every other rapper out there and you always stand on your own talk about some of the things that you talk about in this album and and talk about your individual spirit as an artist compared to everything else that's out there right now well i try to just do what i do what what, what i feel like i would want to hear i try to record what i would want to hear you know, and I, I got a deep passion for the music because I came up around it and I, I came up watching it, um, the golden era of the 80s, you know what I'm saying? So I just really do me. I never planned to really, really um, be any different. I, I definitely wanted to fit in with, with, with everything that's going on in the game, but I just, what I'm saying, it comes off a little different. That's it, you know what I mean? And, and I think as an artist, you, sh- you should want to, be different though this was also the first major collaboration with his father and they go back to their mississippi roots Nas was excited to be working with his dad and he talked about it that was the greatest that was the greatest thing because um you know he's the one that put me in the music game he's the one that told me to get into the music and um you know you know he's he's a talented dude he played harmonica he played the trumpet and he sang on it and all i did was rap on it so the brother's mad talented and uh he got a story that's serious you know so many musicians before hip-hop we need to follow that because they dried out a lot of jazz and blues musicians and just washed them by the wayside so it's important for us to pay attention to what happened to our forefathers before us so it don't happen to us too but it was a great experience though he always he played the trumpet on other albums, Life's Up Shit. Uh and uh, I did something on one of his joints. But this is the first time we did a record together, like my grandmother called me and said, Yeah, I'm feeling that. <laughs> so doing good. That had to feel now. good. Grandma, that, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and he, he's, he's really serious, especially in, in Europe, you know what I mean? It's been the reception over there is bigger than I ever had, like overseas too, with, because of him. One song that I really liked on Street Disciples was Heroes. And this was right after the rape case against Kobe Bryant. If you're not familiar with it, you have to look it up. Kobe Bryant was a huge Nas fan, but Nas didn't hold back his feelings about Kobe Bryant. And I was kind of, I was like, wow. Like when I heard the song and I had to ask Nas about Kobe and this particular song. Kobe is a, he was a, he is a friend of mine, I guess, you know what I'm saying? But uh, there was a, a few cases that I've seen in the athletic world where a lot of athletes were accused for raping women or, you know, some black but mostly white women. And um, it seems like as soon as they get a big, uh, they become superstars, you know, something like that tears them down or try to diminish, diminish their character in front of the kids, you know. And I feel like, you know, the brother Kobe beat the rap and... Um, when he beat it, he didn't say anything about this this thing, you know, that this 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 thing with them trying to diminish their characters. Instead, he called out Shaquille and said Shaquille does it too. And I thought that was incriminating. I thought that was sellout. I thought that was Tomish and Coonish. You know what I'm saying? Nice. So I just think that if you you think yeah, I think that if you got the spotlight and you you know you make it tons of money as it is and kids look up to you. You know, our heroes back in the days was like Muhammad Ali. He used to say, we're the greatest. 
But the heroes today, whether they Michael Jordan or whoever, don't say nothing like they don't know who they are. So the hip hop music is the outspoken street language. It ain't it ain't the nice stuff. It's it's the real stuff. And and hip hop's supposed to speak on the real. So that's what we did. And that wow. ain't just a dog him. That's just to enlighten and waking him up. And wow. I'm sure it did. Remember how I told you how Jay Z and Nas were, were maturing and you know looking at life a little bit differently. Well, Jay Z ended up becoming an executive. He was the president of Def Jam, and one of the artists that he signed was. Nas. He did sign Nas to Def Jam and he put out an album called Hip Hop is Dead. And actually, Jay Z and Nas did a song together called Black Republicans. There's not a lot of maturity in hip hop. And for artists of this caliber to have the beef and have it be as personal as it was for them then to be working together for Jay to sign him and work with him and put out an album and then be on a song with him. That was a big deal. And I truly believe just knowing both Tupac and Biggie, if they would have lived, they would have pieced things up and gotten away from all of that negative energy. The same thing would have happened. They would have probably done an album together. Following Hip Hop is Dead, Nas had another album in 2008. And he wanted to call it nigga, but he wasn't allowed to do so. Then in 2012, he put out an album called Life is Good that had more production from Salam Remy, Justice League, and No ID. I love the first track of this album. It's called No Introduction, and it really sounds like a movie. But one song that stands out on this album is Daughters, in which Nas talks about being a father and raising his daughter, who... By the way, he gave executive producer credits to his daughter Destiny on Stillmatic so she could have that revenue stream for the rest of her life. It's a must-view video, very honest. During this time period before this song came out, Nas and his daughter went through some very public situations on social media, and he addressed it and related it back to black men raising their daughters. As a father of a preteen daughter right now, I could totally relate at the time my daughter was an infant, but I totally understand where Nas was coming from. And again, you should search on YouTube for the daughter single and check it out. And rumor has it that Kanye West will be working with Nas on a new album to be released in 2018. We shall see on that. So 25 plus years in the game, I asked Nas about his longevity. I like it. I like that I haven't blown up over the top where I've seen a lot of guys, you know, get lost and forget what the music is about. And the music is all about them and how much money they got in this on every record. And it's, it's sad, you know. I love where I'm at with it. I love being with my people and staying level-headed and just, you know, the way it is. I, I don't want no Grammys. I don't want... You know, you know, somebody putting a standard saying I have to if I'm not good unless I get a Grammy. I never want none like that. I always want the streets to to um, hear what I'm saying. That's all I ever wanted. Nas never won a Grammy, but he's been nominated 13 times. He's got six VMA nominations and he won two BET awards. I suggest you watch the documentary to learn more about Nas. It's called Time is Illmatic, which kind of chronicles the early days of Nas. In one part of the documentary, his brother Jungle tells the story of a photo that they had. So the, the day that they took um, album shots for Illmatic, they, a camera crew came around the Queensbridge Projects and took a bunch of pictures. Well, there's this one picture of Nas and all the kids that they were down with that was cool with them, you know, from little, you know, you know, 10 year olds to, you know, 20 year olds. But they're all in this group picture. And Jungle in this documentary kind of talks about what happened to everybody in the picture. It's actually very sad, but it just shows you how tough and difficult it is to come from circumstances like that. And Nas was an eighth grade dropout. You know, his success and where he's at now 
doesn't happen for most based on his educational background. However, the irony for this, one of the songs in um, the Book of Rhymes cut from the Godson album, Nas says, my people in the projects or jail, never Harvard or Yale. In 2013, Harvard announced the Nasir Jones Hip Hop Fellowship. So he is helping a lot of young people um, when they get to Harvard with this fellowship, which I think for a eighth grade dropout is an amazing story. Well, that's the story of Nas. Thank you for listening to the Backstory Podcast. I want to thank my producer, DJ One Plus Two, for helping put this together. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, in light of recent events surrounding Kanye West, I figured I want to pull out the archives. I have one of the most um, interesting interviews with Kanye very early in his career, a 26-year-old Kanye. And coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, it will be called I Miss the Old Kanye. And here's a sneak peek. I think it was all in God's hands, and he he basically made this song for me. I feel like with the producing and with the rapping, things are about to go pretty good. But he just he basically stopped me and said, Kanye, I'm about to give you the world. Just know at any given time, I can take it away from you. So always keep me first. Thank you for listening to the Backstory Podcast. I'm Kobe Cole. Get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast. You can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level. 